Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Update for Monday, May 8th and Tuesday, May 9th, 2023. Uh, I was unable to do a roundup yesterday, so there will doubling up today, and that means it's going to be a little bit longer than usual. I apologize for that. Uh, we'll just briefly run through a couple of anniversaries. On May 8th, 1429, the Siege of Orléans ended uh, with the withdrawal of the besieging English and therefore a French victory. This was the highlight of Joan of Arc's career uh, and helped reverse French fortunes in the Hundred Years' War. Uh, this was not a decisive defeat for the English, uh, but it did prevent a decisive English victory had they captured Orléans, it's very likely uh, that the English would have been able to go on and conquer all of France. So this bought the French uh, more time. And as we know, they uh, wound up not being conquered by the English. So uh, uh, there you go. Fairly important, uh, fairly important event in French history. On May 8th, 1945, the German high command in Berlin signed the Instrument of Unconditional Surrender, which provided for the withdrawal and disarmament of the German military and the ouster of the Nazi-led government, thus ending World War II in Europe. Uh, because the instrument was signed late into the evening, thanks to the wonder of time zones, VE Day or Victory in Europe Day is celebrated on May 8th in points west of Berlin and May 9th and most points east of Berlin, such as Russia. This will come into play a bit later. On May 9th, 1271, Lord Edward, Duke of Gascony, the future Edward Longshanks, King Edward I of England, uh, landed at Acre to begin what historians now regard as the Ninth Crusade, uh, or sometimes Lord Edward's Crusade. Uh, his army was far too small to actually make any serious gains. Uh, there was a French army that was supposed to join him, but got slightly sidetracked side and wound up in Tunis, besieging Tunis. That's a whole other story about the Eighth Crusade. Uh, but uh, Edward did have some success. He was able to ally with the Mongols the, uh, of the Ilkhanate uh, and win some victories against the Mamluks, thereby preventing the Mamluk Sultan at the time, Barbars, from completely eradicating the Crusader presence in the region. The, the Mamluks would eventually go on to eradicate the Crusader presence in the region. Uh, Acre uh, was the last crusader state in the Levant and fell to the Mamluks uh, in 1291, but Edward's crusade did buy, as you see, uh, did buy the crusaders a couple of decades. Uh, also on May 9th, 1865, the uh, president of the United States, Andrew Johnson, issued a proclamation declaring that the Confederacy's armed resistance was virtually over. This obliged any countries or ships at sea that were harboring Confederate fugitives to turn them over to authorities. Uh, it is often cited as the formal end date of the U.S. Civil war, although the fighting was not completely at an end. Uh, there were still some small rebel units in the field. Uh, nevertheless, this is the date that you usually get uh, when the war ended. On to the news. In Syria, uh, in the Middle East, in Syria, U.S. Central Command is looking into reports that its May 3rd airstrike in northwestern Syria's Idlib province killed a civilian and not, as initially claimed, a senior al-Qaeda leader. Syrian Civil Defense, a.k.a. the White Helmet, said at the time that the strike had killed a local shepherd. It seems they're both talking about the same individual as the victim's family is publicly denying allegations that he was involved in al-Qaeda. So it seems the shepherd, who knows, maybe he lived a 
dual life. I find that hard to believe, but it's possible. CENTCOM issued a statement on Tuesday that uh, highlighting the U.S. military's impressive capacity for gibberish said in part that, quote, we are aware of the allegations of a civilian casualty and the outcome of the confirmation process will inform if further investigation is necessary and how it should proceed. I'm glad, end quote. Glad they cleared that up. Elsewhere, the Jordanian military was apparently responsible for airstrikes on Monday that damaged a drug manufacturing facility in southern Syria's Daraa province and killed an alleged drug trafficker in neighboring Sueda province. Jordanian officials, to my knowledge, have refused to confirm their involvement. Uh, interestingly, the facility, which is reportedly linked to Hezbollah, was abandoned at the time of the strike. Now, I'm not saying that Bashar al-Assad's government enabled these airstrikes as part of some backroom deal to crack down on drug trafficking in return for its readmission to the Arab League over the weekend, but I'm also not not saying that. Uh, in Turkey, there are a few election stories of note. A record percentage of Turkish expats have participated in this year's election, with officials reporting some 1.76 million absentee ballots cast out of 3.5 million expat voters for a particip- participation rate of around 51%. By comparison, about 45% of Turkish expats voted in 2018. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won 60% of that vote, but it's hard to predict how six years and a significant increase in uh, participation might affect that result. Uh, There seems to be elsewhere, there seems to be some concern that third-party candidate Muharrem Inje uh, could split the opposition vote in the May 14th presidential first round and thereby somehow throw the election to Erdogan. Inje polls in the single digits, but he does tap into some demographics like young voters, first-time voters, that are overall uh, good for the main opposition candidate Kamal Kilij Taralu. Still, I'm not sure this is all that big a deal. For one thing, there's no guarantee that Inje's voters would necessarily go for uh, Kilij Taralu or indeed... uh, Uh, that they would vote at all were their candidate not on the ballot. Uh, For another, while it's possible that Inje could prevent Kilij Darulu from winning a first-round victory, it's also possible that his supporters could broaden the electorate enough to prevent Erdogan from doing the same, which would give Kilij Darulu a chance to unseat the incumbent in a head-to-head runoff. Uh, The opposition's biggest concern, of course, is that Erdogan is going to simply steal the election or, barring that, refuse to accept any defeat. He and his supporters are already violating the fair part of free and fair elections by, for example, trying to stone prominent opposition parties at political rallies, as they did uh, earlier this week. Media coverage is overwhelmingly tilted in Erdogan's favor, and disinformation laws, uh, put that in quotes, have been wielded to stifle opposition campaigning via social media. Despite this, and despite Erdogan's theoretical control over Turkish election authorities, there's a new piece in foreign policy from Gönül Tol and Ali Yajolu uh, that makes the case that Erdogan could really lose this election. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, you should definitely check that out. Uh, In Israel-Palestine, the Israeli military has spent the past two days bombarding Gaza in an attempt to take out senior Palestinian Islamic Jihad leaders and apparently their families, too. Pre-dawn airstrikes killed three PIJ officials along with 10 other people, including four children. Another airstrike on Tuesday afternoon killed two more people, their identities unknown as I was writing this. Uh, An Israeli military spokesperson stressed that the IDF, quote, takes all feasible precautions to mitigate harm to civilians, end quote, which is a fascinating statement to make after you've just made four kids into collateral damage in a decapitation operation. There's been no military response from PIJ or Hamas as yet, but both groups have suggested that one could be forthcoming, which means the Israeli government may have just triggered another Gaza war in which many more 
more civilians, many of those children will presumably be killed. But the good news is that National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir last seen ridiculing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for not killing enough people in Gaza previously and threatening to quit Netanyahu's coalition because of it is now back in the fold. They're getting along again. I'm sure those four children would be pleased to know that their sacrifices brought the Israeli government back from the brink of collapse. It's also not Ben-Gvir's most recent international humiliation. You'll have to click through to read about uh, how he managed to get uh, the Europe European... Union's Israel delegation to cancel its uh, VE Day celebration because he was insisting uh, on attending and speaking at it. Uh, just a total humiliation. Uh, but this uh, bombardment of Gaza has knocked that out of the news. So, uh, you know, it's a win-win if you ignore the body count. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi and Syrian governments announced on Tuesday that they've agreed to reopen their respective embassies. Uh, you may recall that Reuters reported that this was in the cards back in late March, uh, part of the overall Arab normalization with Assad's government and the normalization between the Saudis and Iran. It is unclear when exactly the embassies are expected to be up and running again. In Iran, according to the United Nations, Iranian authorities have executed 209 people so far this year, an astonishing pace of more than 10 executions per week. By comparison, Iran is believed to have executed somewhere around 314 people all of last year. Uh, most of these executions appear to be for drug-related crimes. Uh, on to Asia in Pakistan. Pakistani authorities finally made good on their threat to arrest former Prime Minister Imran Khan on Tuesday, sparking protests across the country that in some cases involved violent encounters with security forces. The charge ostensibly is corruption, or more specifically Khan's failure to appear in court to answer charges that he illicitly received some $24.7 million in land from a corrupt property developer, while PM, uh, there are... Uh, other details surrounding uh, the uh, return of funds that this developer uh, allegedly uh, laundered in the UK and Khan's treatment of that money, but uh, it doesn't really matter. The point is that they wanted to arrest him. Uh, Khan's real offense is, of course, running afoul of Pakistan's security establishment and of publicly criticizing said establishment in the lead-up to this year's general election. Khan himself has dismissed the corruption charge as politically motivated. Following Khan's arrest, his Pakistan Tehrika in Saf party asked its partisans to shut down Pakistan. That's a quote. And it seems that they've given it their best shot. Protesters have blocked roads in several major Pakistani cities and have attacked a number of military facilities. At least one person has been killed and 12 wounded in unclear circumstances and authorities have imposed internet blackouts. Uh, I've seen discussions online about the possibility of uh, martial law, but no indication as yet that it's been imposed. Uh, it's somewhat unclear, partly, I guess, due to the blackouts, how, just how heavy-handed security forces have been thus far in their response to the demonstrations. Uh, but this situation has the potential to spin out of control very quickly. In India, the situation seems to be a bit more under control in the Indian state of Maripur, where intercommunal violence has killed at least 62 people and displaced some 35,000 since last Wednesday. A local curfew apparently kicked in over the weekend, and authorities are now starting to bring some of those displaced persons back home. 
in Myanmar. Uh, Human Rights Watch is accusing Myanmar's military of using a thermobaric bomb in last month's airstrike in, Sa- in the Sangang region. The strike targeted a ceremony for the opening of an anti-junta People's Defense Forces militia office and killed at least 168 people, at least 40 of them children. The use of a thermobaric or fuel-air device would explain the high casualty rate. Uh, In China, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gong met U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns in Beijing on Monday, after which both mouthed some predictable platitudes about stabilizing U.S.-Chinese relations. Uh, The words are less relevant than the meeting itself, which comes after members of the Biden administration had been complaining for weeks, really since the Chinese balloon of death saga, that Chinese officials wouldn't take their calls. If this meeting signals an end to that communications blackout, then uh, one assumes that is a positive development. On to Africa and Sudan. The UN now says that at least 604 people have been killed and over 5,100 wounded since the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces unit went to war with one another on April 15th. It's hard to know whether these figures are accurate, let alone to identify the casualties, but the Sudanese doctors' syndicate said on Monday that it's confirmed 487 civilian deaths thus far. Almost 700,000 people have now been displaced by the conflict, which shows no sign of abating, though negotiations between the two parties are continuing in Saudi Arabia. The focus there seems to be on achieving a basic commitment to allowing humanitarian relief to get to people who need it, though even that may be too ambitious. Sudanese military commander Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is insisting that all RSF forces vacate Khartoum before he'll be willing to negotiate a real ceasefire, and there's no indication that the RSF is prepared to go along with that stipulation. Conflict between the Hausa and Nuba communities in southern Sudan's White Nile state has reportedly left at least 16 people dead since Sunday. There's no indication as to what started the fighting and no reason to think it's connected with the military RSF conflict. But the fact that whatever passed for order and security in Syria is now gone could contribute to more outbreaks of intercommunal violence and make it much harder to get a handle on those outbreaks if slash when they occur. In Tunisia, at least four people, including the attacker, were killed Tuesday in a shooting targeting Africa's oldest synagogue, the El Griba Synagogue on the Tunisian island of Jerba. The attacker was apparently a security guard at a nearby Tunisian National Guard base. Uh, He killed two visitors to the site and a security guard while wounding nine other people before being killed himself by security forces. There's no known motive as yet, though the synagogue has been the target of similar attacks in the past. In Niger, according to that country's national radio station, Voix du Sahel, uh, some 13,000 people have fled jihadist violence in southwestern Niger's Tilaberi region since Saturday. Militants attacked a village that day, killing at least four people. Since then, residents of a number of isolated islands in the Niger River have sought refuge in the town of Ayuru. Ayuru sorry. Uh, AFP's report suggests there may be some sort of ethnic component to the violence, possibly fueled by jihadists. Uh, of course, Islamic State is particularly active in, Tilibari, uh, in the Tilaberi region. Uh, In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, intercommunal violence claimed the lives of at least nine people on Sunday in the DRC's Mayandombe province, not far from Kinshasa. The Teke and Yaka communities in that area are battling primarily over land rights, a conflict the Human Rights Watch says has killed over 300 people and displaced more than 50,000 since June. Sunday's attack appears to have been carried out by a Yaka militia. 
Uh, in Europe, in Russia, the British government is reportedly set to designate Russia's Wagner Group private military firm as a terrorist organization. The designation would outlaw Wagner in the UK and open up potential sanctions against the organization. Wagner is already under UK as well as European Union and US sanctions. Uh, and earlier this year, it was designated as a transnational criminal organiza organization by the US. The EU may be next to consider slapping the terrorist label on the group. Elsewhere, Russian President Vladimir Putin marked Victory Day on Tuesday with a meager military parade. As you might imagine, most of Russia's military equipment is otherwise occupied at the moment. And an angry speech in which, as he's done repeatedly over the last year plus, uh, he attempted to cast his invasion of Ukraine as a defensive war against Western aggression. There was nothing particularly notable about the event except possibly for the lack of hardware that was available for the parade. Uh, in news from Ukraine, the Russian military commemorated the day with another overnight missile barrage targeting primarily Kyiv. Ukrainian officials claimed that their air defenses intercepted most of the Russian projectiles. The previous day also saw a robust Russian bombardment that hit scores of targets across Ukraine, including apparently a Red Cross humanitarian facility in Odessa uh, and killed at least four people. Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin is once again complaining about mistreatment by the Russian military after seemingly patching things up over the weekend. On Tuesday, he released an audio message reiterating his claim that the Russian military is not providing his fighters with the ammunition they need and said that he'd been warned against pulling Wagner out of Bakhmut as he had previously threatened to do, as such a move would, quote, be regarded as treason against the motherland, end quote. Uh, Russian authorities have reportedly suspended operations at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant over threats of Ukrainian provocations. It's unclear what that means, but fears of a Russian withdrawal from the plant, essentially abandoning what is still a very dangerous site, are growing. The U.S. is preparing another $1.2 billion tranche of military aid for Ukraine, this time in the form of funds that would be used to make direct purchases from defense firms. The money, assuming none of it gets siphoned off somehow, will likely go toward ammunition and satellite imagery primarily. The U.K. government, meanwhile, is reportedly leading a European group that's requesting procurement bids from arms manufacturers to provide Ukraine with long-range, up to 300 kilometers in range, armaments. Ukrainian officials have been asking for longer-range munitions for months now, but the U.S. has rebuffed those demands, presumably due to fears that they could be used to strike targets well inside Russia and thus potentially escalate the war. Uh, in the Americas, in Chile, Sunday's conservative victory in Chile's Constitutional Assembly election looks close to complete as the far-right Republican ticket emerged with at least 23 seats and the center-right bloc with 11 the left-of-center coalition supported by Chilean President Gabriel Boric emerged with 16 seats, which means it won't be able to block any constitutional initiative that has right-wing and center-right consensus, as proposals for the new constitution will require a three-fifths majority in the 50-seat assembly to be adopted. Any proposed constitution that comes out of this body is likely to be indistinguishable from Chile's current charter, if not more conservative in some ways. In Ecuador, uh, that country's National Assembly voted on Tuesday to open an impeachment trial against President Guillermo Lasso on corruption charges, even though investigators for its oversight committee had issued a report last week recommending against such a step. Lasso has threatened to dissolve the legislature and move to a snap election if he's threatened with removal from office. Tuesday's vote saw 88 legislators agree to open uh, the trial, which is just four shy of the number that would be needed to remove Lasso, with 21 legislators absent 
Uh, so the numbers are not in his favor, one would assume. Uh, in Haiti, according to the UN, over 600 people were killed by gang violence in that country last month. Uh, gang activity has grown increasingly out of control since former President Jovenel Moise, Moise's assassination uh, in July 2021. The UN continues to push for an armed intervention, uh, international armed intervention, despite the, uh, let's say, at best checkered history of such operations from a Haitian perspective. In Canada, the Canadian government on Monday expelled a Toronto-based Chinese diplomat named Zhao Wei amid allegations that he'd been involved in an effort to intimidate a Canadian politician who's been critical of the Chinese government. The Chinese government retaliated on Tuesday by expelling a Canadian staffer who'd been working at that country's Shanghai consulate. Uh, and finally, in the United States, none other than uh, Daniel Bessner, my co-host on American Prestige, uh, wrote a piece for the Alameda Institute linking the U.S. interest in the conflict in Ukraine to Washington's fears about its precious rules. Uh, I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs from his piece. Donald Trump's ascension to the presidency in 2017 contributed to a significant uptick in chatter in Washington, D.C. about the decline of the rules-based international order. The, so, the just-so story told by those who valorize such an order goes as follows. After World War II, the United States, in concert with Western European allies, constructed an international system in which liberal norms of engagement and exchange and institutions like international law and the United Nations helped end major wars and ensure relative geopolitical stability. Though those who promote this tale often admit that mistakes were made in the Cold War and post-Cold War periods, the Korean, Vietnam, and Iraq wars are usually highlighted as especially egregious errors, they nevertheless claim that on balance the rules-based international order provided a force for good in the world. Trump's victory took the wind out of the sails of this triumphalist narrative, the reality star's willingness to openly criticize his forebears' launching of endless wars, his vulgarity and xenophobia, and his discursive insouciance toward Traditional U.S. ideas about global power and responsibility generated an almost hysterical panic among defenders of the liberal order. Trump, it seemed to many, was a harbinger of, the, of U.S. hegemony's end, or at least its attenuation. These anxieties were also held by U.S. allies, especially in Western Europe, who likewise fretted about the end of the era of U.S. leadership. When President Joseph R. Biden assumed office in 2021, his primary foreign policy goal was to reinvigorate the rules-based order by persuading allies that the United States was committed to reinvigorating its leadership. The war in Ukraine provided Biden, Antony Blinken, and other key members of the administration with a seemingly ideal opportunity to show the world that the United States wasn't going anywhere. Unsurprisingly, the administration seized this opportunity with aplomb. Uh, on that note, uh, that's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for sticking with me through, uh, again, what was a, a much longer than usual update. I apologize for that. Couldn't be helped. Uh, and uh, thanks to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers, especially if you are paid foreign exchange subscribers. Uh, can't thank you enough for making this newsletter possible. And if you're not one of those, please consider it. Uh, as your support would be greatly appreciated. And uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.